0: Wild Atlantic Law, a festival of legal ideas with a fantastic range of interesting speakers. Wild Atlantic Law will be held at in Ennistyman, County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May. Booking is now open at wildatlanticlaw.com. Hello, you're very welcome to episode 57 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister.
1: Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie.
0: Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, you will recall, we were joined by Barrister Martin Bradley, an old pal of yours. Yeah. What a fascinating discussion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the whole issue of artefacts that were taken during colonial times and things that were effectively looted during wartime, you know, and they find themselves in private collections and public museums. And obviously, and sometimes, as he said, there are, are artefacts that have religious significance, cultural significance. What about
0: your old alma mater? Answer me that one now. Trinity College and the poor, the poor uh, burgers wrong of with you. Uh, Well,
1: What they, about all that? At least they gave them back.
0: <laughs> they did give them back. But I love the fact that there was a debate <laughs> prior to giving them back. And that's, well, it says you, a debate is always a good thing. We welcome discussion. Okay. And this week, we're going to do slightly something slightly different. We always have a guest in this show. But for the first time ever, we're going to proceed just the two of us.
1: Yeah, Isn't that mm-hmm. it? And
0: mm-hmm. you're going to tell us about a case, Griffith and Griffith from 1942, a fascinating case that you discovered many moons ago and are very interested in. And I'm really yep. looking forward to discussing that with you, Mark. But first, we're going to take a look at some cases from the Decisive's website. And we're going to start with a case involving succession law and specifically what should happen if an executor to a will loses the capacity to act. So it's not the actual person who made the will. Obviously, the person is now deceased. And the executor who's supposed to give effect to the deceased's wishes is no longer compus mentis.
1: What happens? Yeah, well, what happened in this case, this is the case of EF deceased, and it's the decision of Ms. Justice Siobhan Stack. And really the family members in this case were trying to get an independent solicitor to be appointed guardian ad litem in relation to certain proceedings they wanted to bring on the basis that their sister, who was the um, executrix, the named executrix, had had lost capacity. So there was a question mark over whether she had lost capacity or not. Um, but the court, I think, was finally satisfied that, that there w- was a very serious issue in that regard. However, the jurisdiction of the court to appoint an independent solicitor is one that only arises in certain circumstances and the rules of court do actually make provision for an executor who loses capacity. However, the rule in question arose under the old wardship jurisdiction. Now there is this new decision-making legislation where somebody loses capacity and so the circuit court is the body that has the right to appoint what used to be described as a committee of wards of court and what they do is they they appoint a decision-making representative. And so, what Mr. Justice Stack said, it was not appropriate where there was a question mark over capacity, simply to appoint a new solicitor. That they had to go through the circuit court procedure okay. for and appointing make an official uh, Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So the next case concerns an adoption. The child in question had been conceived and born outside of the state. Ordinarily, the adoption authority of Ireland is supposed to consult with the biological father of the child obviously in relation to any adoption application. In this case, however, the father could not be identified. So there was a difficulty here. This is the case of, in the matter of the proposed adoption of A, a minor born on a certain date. And this is
1: a decision of one of our more recent judges, Judge Nula Jackson. Yeah. So, as you said, normally arising from case law going back some decades now, before an adoption order is made, they have to try and consult with the biological father in this particular case the mother of the child had come from another country she said that she did was not didn't know who the father of the child was clearly because it's an extra jurisdictional matter it wasn't within the remit of the adoption authority of ireland to make inquiries in the other country so the most appropriate thing to do in those that case was simply to make an application to the High Court to dispense with the requirement to consult with the biological father. Okay. And the the court was satisfied that the, this was the appropriate thing to do.
0: Okay, very good. And finally, we <coughs> take a look at a long-running case involving illegal dumping. In this case, which went over a period of 22 years, there was a, a, alleged I- illegal dumping, or I think it was well established that there was illegal dumping. And there was a requirement to appoint an independent expert for the purposes of assisting the court and parties in implementing a remediation plan, obviously improving the site that had been subject yeah, to I, illegal dumping. I, I mean, I, the number
1: of decisions I've seen in relation to this particular case, and, uh, and I mean, <clears throat> I think it's just worth quoting what Ms Justice Humphrey said here. In the 44 years since a huge illegal dump, possibly the largest in the history of the state, began operating at a quarry site in Whitestown West, in West Wicklow, in about 1979, the situation has led to at least five sets of proceedings Twenty-two years of litigation, numerous judgments and decisions of which this is the eighteenth, and he goes on to say it later, a pessimist could be could rather be forgiven for hoping that all being well, we may see remediation before hitting the official John Dice versus John Dice threshold of fifty-four years in twenty thirty-three. So this case has just, just it's grown legs, okay. and so what he did in relation to this particular aspect was, I mean, the. the The last few judgments have all been to do with this issue of remediation. Who's responsible for it? Who's responsible for paying for it? What remediation requires? And he said, well, really, the appropriate thing to do is to get an independent expert in to oversee. And so that's the order that was made. And I noticed the plaintiff here was called
0: Brownfield Restoration Ireland. So the clue is in the title there, really, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, and that's Brownfield Restoration Ireland and Wicklow County Council. And it's a decision of Mr. Justice Humphreys. So we're back after this short break with both of us discussing the case of Griffith and Griffith. Silence in the Fifth Court. Okay, Mark, this is a first for us on the Fifth Court. We don't have a guest. We're going to do it. We're doing it ourselves. We're going solo here, are we? Well, solo if there's two of us. I don't Mm. know whether that's a contradiction in terms. Mm. But there's a case called Griffith and Griffith, which is a decision from 1944... The Year of Our Lord. And it's a decision of Mr. Justice Kevin Haw. People mm. might have been more familiar with his son, Kevin Haw Jr. Kevin Haw Sr. was a former Attorney General and was one of the very few High Court judges that existed in Ireland at that time. Yeah. And he gave this decision in Griffith versus Griffith, which is a case involving nullity and family law. Yeah. And it
1: is a case that you love. Well, it's now, a case. You tell yeah. me why. Well, it's the case I first read when I was in the King's Inns, and um, I suppose it coincided with two things. One, I was reading Dubliners by Joyce around the same time, and I was struck with how this would have fitted reasonably comfortably as a story in in Dubliners. And then also I was working, as you know, as a family researcher, so I spent a lot of my time looking at sort of birth, marriage and death records. And in more recent years, family law cases have been anonymized. But this is a case from the 1940s where we know the names of the parties. And in fact, I was able to look up the marriage certificate, which despite the fact, and I know I, spoilers normally, but uh, but despite the fact there was an order of nullity, the marriage record was still on the register, which was curious. So I suppose that, that was of, of, of interest to me. But I just, I, I thought the story was just so interesting in terms of what Irish society was like in 1925, yes. um, when 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 the events in this case took place? So oh. I just thought maybe we 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 might discuss it. Yeah, and,
0: no, absolutely. And, and I mean, I think I think the, the, hmm. the comparison with the the content of a Dubliner story actually is really apt in hmm. relation to this. It's kind of anyway. Let's let, let's yeah. let's go into it. So hmm. the year of our Lord 1925, yeah. young fella
1: is out and he wants to go camping in Hoth. Yeah, uh, yeah and, 19-year-old boy. Uh, yes. Cyril Griffith. He's apprenticed as a, in the leather trade and he goes on a camping holiday with a friend in Hoth and he, they meet a couple of young ladies and he, for want of a better term, gets together with this girl Margaret Hayes. Okay, and we should say he's from Capel Street in Dublin. Well, he lived in Eccles Street, but he was working with his father in a, <clears throat> a company called Mullen Brothers, which I think is still there or, or, or a, a successor is still there on Capel Street. And Margaret Hayes lived in uh, Dorset Street. So, I mean, very much, you know, you know, uh, in a north inner city. city. And so what happened was four months, three, four months after they went on this camping holiday, he's working in Mullen Brothers and who walks in but Margaret Hayes with her mother. And we literally, we have a, a, from the case, it gives the verbatim account or an alleged verbatim account of what took place because Mrs. Hayes goes in and says, Is this him? And Margaret nodded. And she sa- she then turns to Cyril and says, Do you know this girl? And he says, I was with her some months ago, Mrs. Hayes. And she says, I have had this girl examined by a doctor and she is pregnant and you are the cause of it. I remember the date my daughter was in Hoth. She took the liberty to go in my absence and she has never gone there without me before. And he says, Then she, cu- I couldn't be the father of the child. But she says, It couldn't be anybody but you you can't make a victim out of my daughter. Now, the... Point is here that he's nineteen years old and she's seventeen years old.
0: Oh, will you just go back to the Hoth yeah. bit again? Okay.
1: Okay. So,
0: so mm. how did they do they go to Hoth together? No, they no, they, mean, they met at they met in Hoth.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I don't know. If so that it, was the slain it, of the day, or yeah, you know, I, I don't know if hoth the was longitude big camping is it the longitude longitude oxygen witness. I yes. Don't know. Anyway, electric picnic. Hey, I, I don't, we I got another opportunity I, to mention I, the electric. I, I picnic. don't. I don't know if there was a, a music festival going on, but there were certainly tents involved. There were tents involved. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, and how did they meet on 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 the the grassy hill we, in we, Hoth?
1: We have very little information about the meeting, other than the fact that whatever took place there, she alleged, gave rise to her pregnancy. Okay. Okay. And I uh, let, we so we, there we was a we, visit we, to a tent. There was a visit to a tent, and we uh, without wanting to make, give too many spoilers, as a result of Mrs. Hayes coming into the shop, they end up getting cyril's father involved and he then takes cyril to the priest father O'Doherty, and between them they say look you've clearly wronged this girl you're clearly the father of a child you have to marry her and he protests and says no i'm not i don't think i could be the father of the child they say well we she wouldn't say this if there wasn't something to it and so they compel him to get married to her so they arrive at the church saint joseph's catholic church in berkeley road in Dublin. 18th of November November 1925, they get married at four o'clock, they don't talk to each other beforehand, they get married, they leave separately, go back to their respective families' houses and it's only a couple of months later that Cyril's father says, look, you're married to this girl, you really ought to be living together and they arrange for her to move into Cyril's family house and they set up a room for them to live together in married bliss and it is not until February 1926 that they have their one and only act of sexual intercourse let's not put too fine a point on it after which cyril says and this is again verbatim from the from the the judgment what took place now didn't take place when we were in hoth why have you blamed me for hoth and margaret admitted straight away that he was not the father of her child and she said that she apparently she told cyril who the real father of the child was although the, the, the name isn't given in the judgment and she said she had to be find somebody else to be their father of the child because she said the other man knew too much about her. And we can only speculate why she didn't want to marry the, the man who was the father of the child. And I suppose in 1944, when the judgment came out, maybe they wouldn't have speculated the way we would now, but obviously we can well imagine okay. that, that this 17-year-old girl had been put in a difficult position, should we say. Of course, and, of course. And And I love the mm-hmm. fact that a central player in yeah. this...
0: Is Father O'Doherty, so there Mm. had to be a Catholic priest involved. Can can we go back to that initial meeting? So, so Mm. let's go back into the shop. I mean, the Mm. detail is interesting, you know. So your man is going about his business, Mm. working away as a leather worker, whatever that means, and in comes this mother and daughter, and he's immediately accused of being the father of her child that is due. She's pregnant Mm -hmm. now. I think it's we we will go to the court case and and mm. the court case is very interesting but he is repeatedly referred to as a kind of an innocent young yeah. fellow. Yeah. You know, and did he have any sort of opportunity to protest his innocence and to try and explain that maybe he mightn't be the
1: father of the child? Well, it yeah, it appears that he he said to his father that he didn't think he was the father of the child and he said to the priest he didn't think he was the father of the child, but I suppose he clearly hadn't had any sexual experience beforehand or that's the, the, the impression one has that he as you see he was described as a bit of an innocent and he clearly wasn't 100% sure and it really wasn't until the time that he was in the family home with Margaret and said what took place now didn't take place in hope. So, to, um, to quote Mick
0: Jagger mm, let's spell in the night together and after yeah. that he kind of said no hold on a minute yeah. you know now yeah. I definitely mm. know that
1: yeah. I'm not the father exactly. of the child. and child and she, and she admitted straight away so what to do? What to do so, at that point? So at that stage, he goes and he talks to his father. They go to Father O'Doherty. And, um, and again, you know, it, it's, it's a reasonable detail is given because Father O'Doherty did give evidence in the court case in 1944 that she explained to him what had happened. And he then drew up a document to the, for her to sign, which said, I, Mary, Margaret Mary Griffith, hereby state that Cyril Griffith is not and could not be the father of the child I am bearing. And that the statements which I made to the effect that no one else but he could be the father of this child, which statements forced him to marry me, were knowingly false. And she signed that in the presence of Father Doherty and Cyril Griffith.
0: Okay. And if there's a person that I found kind of, I mean, you know, I'm sure all of the parties were noble in in this Mm. case, but the father of Cyril, who, you know, Mm. sort of says, well, you're going to have to do right by this girl and marry Mm. her. Mm. And then after they get married, as you said, mm. at four o'clock in Haddington mm. Road, yeah. and then they both just go home. Yeah. That's it. They don't even, mm. you know, don't go talk for to a, each other. a go wedding for, breakfast no, or whatever you no, have. No, 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 <laughs> no, no ceremony or, or, or dancing <laughs> till 3am. They've got pint in no, across exactly. the way in the, mm. the 51 yeah, or anything. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Um, so, so like they headed for mm. the hills. Yeah, yeah. But he And he was the one who said, look, you know, guys actually are married here, so she should live with us. Yeah. But he also encouraged his son to pay her 15 shillings a month. Is yeah, that yeah. right? I think
1: 10 shillings a week. A week? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Even better. So, yeah, so uh, even though, and this is after the, the you know, the, the, it was acknowledged that she had effectively misled him into uh, to, to marrying her. He kept her. paying. He kept paying, exactly. And what's interesting, well, I mean, it, it, it what's interesting is that he, di- he stopped paying in 1935 after they got a church annulment. So clearly the view was that while they were married in the eyes of the church, he should be paying some money towards her.
0: And will you explain that, Mark? Okay, mm. so so obviously annulment prior to the introduction of divorce in this mm. jurisdiction, mm. the only way you could effectively separate and live separate lives and get married again was if mm. you got a civil annulment. Yeah, But people are more familiar with kind of ecclesiastical annulments, I think, aren't they? And the fact yeah, well, that, you know, the church can annul a, a relationship. And in this case, that came first. Yeah,
1: I mean, I suppose it, it, I mean, it's worth just reminding listeners that, uh, that, you know, divorce, while it had technically been available in Ireland until independence, although I think it was only through a private act of parliament, was effectively not available after independence. In the, uh, and then under the, it, it, was, it was specifically prohibited by the 1937 constitution. So, as you say, the only way to get out of a marriage was to have it annulled. Now, the term annulment can be used of almost any contract, but it has particular significance in relation to a marriage contract, because what it's effectively saying is that this marriage never took place. And in those days, the only way to really say that a marriage could be annulled in in the sense of never having, having taken place was if somebody had effectively been compelled to get married, that somebody was not getting married of their own volition. And, it, and it's important to say, and maybe we, we didn't say it particularly earlier, there was a very real suggestion that if Cyril didn't marry Margaret that he would go to jail. That because she was under the age of 18, they don't use the term rape. But the the, the very strong suggestion is that by having had sex with her when she was 17 and unmarried, that he would be liable to a prison sentence. And he, he was terrified that this is what would happen to him if he didn't marry her. Okay,
0: so so let's go to, and obviously, I mean, that was huge pressure. Sure on this young man and, you know, obviously clouded his ability to mm. to make his own decision and his own kind of free will yeah. choice. Yeah. Um, will you go to the, the annulment which took place in a Dublin diocesan court and there was also a Roman aspect to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the I don't... Well, I, actually, I suppose just before we get on, onto the sort of legal stuff, I suppose there's, there's a couple of kind of postscripts to the story itself. One is that in May 1926, Margaret gave birth to twins who died almost immediately after birth. So, uh, I mean, obviously, hugely tragic. But the but I suppose then from from Cyril's point of view, there was not a child who was legally his arising from the marriage, okay? Um, because the the, the the children didn't survive. And then the other thing that's, w- that's worth mentioning is that Margaret sent two very very sad letters to him. One in 1927 and one in 29, remember they got married in 25, and the, the one in 1927, she said, I ask you for God's sake to try and forgive all the wrong and harm I have done you. I know it is a lot to ask, but try and look, to overlook it all. And then two years later she wrote, writes to him and says, My dear Cyril, I hope you will excuse this note as, I told, as you told me before not to write to you, but I want you to meet me on Monday night at the Matra Hospital at 8 o'clock. Please meet me there as there is something I would like to ask you. And, and he, he didn't never, go to meet her. So he never we did, replied. We never found out what I suppose she that's was. understandable, Mark, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But I mean clearly he 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 was he felt very hurt and betrayed by what happened. But you know, he was still technically married to her in the eyes of the church until nineteen thirty five, when when, as you say, there was an annulment proceeding before the diocesan court. Now what the diocesan court found was that the marriage was invalid on the grounds of what they called defective consent. And the term that they used was a consent caused by a fear unjustly imposed. So, I suppose if if he had been the father of the children, it would have been a fear justly imposed. But it was unjustly imposed by virtue of the the, the misrepresentation by her. And so, the, the the annulment then took place in 1935. So, what been... about
0: Father O'Doherty? Did he okay. have a
1: say in relation to this? Um, it, I don't think the judgment goes into his role in the diocesan Court but I think we can assume that he was involved because he was certainly involved then in the nullity proceedings
0: Yes I so, mean the civil mm, courts were mm, all mm. interested in what he had to say
1: yeah, absolutely D-
0: the, He had him mm. being a witness to mm. her statement that yeah, you know yeah, I acknowledge that mm. this man is not the father of my yeah, child yeah, yeah, and yeah. I falsely represented that mm. fact was sufficient in order to get a decree of nullity so he could get married again in the eyes of the church
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, In 1935 Yes, that's the case. And like I say, I presume that Father O'Doherty was involved in that. So Um, obviously
0: he went down then the next day, mm -hmm. down to, you know,
1: the four courts and filed an application for a civil nullity. No, he waited another seven years until 1942 before he brought an application for civil nullity. But he wasn't paying the 10 shillings every week. No, by that stage he was out of that. And it it may be, uh, and again, we we can only surmise that the 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 church nullity was considered more important maybe from a social point of view or whatever that and and again there is no reference in the judgment to whether or not he was looking to get married again but by 1942 he'd have been in his late 30s and was he still a single was, lad at this stage do we know that well uh, i suppose in the eyes of the in the eyes of the state he ha- he had to be uh, or he was still married so he couldn't have got married again yes, from, of course but, okay. but, but but there's no reference to any other marriage anyway in the judgment The curious thing, though, is that despite the fact that he'd stopped paying Margaret money in 1935, when he issued his nullity proceedings in 1942, the only response that he received was an application from her to the court for the payment of alimony pendent light, pending the hearing of the action. So 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 she she put her grief behind her. She put her grief behind (laughs) her and (laughs) appears to have a case needed some money. Okay, yeah, yeah. So then, the the, so marker, the case
0: came before Judge Kevin Hawk, yeah, and do we yeah. know a little bit about him, Mark? Do you want to tell us a little bit? About him? Your former Attorney General, yeah, been I appointed mean, to the mm, High Court.
1: Yeah, I mean, you probably know as much as I do. Yes. I must um, I,
0: But obviously, a very senior yeah. member of the judiciary, yeah, exactly, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, a serious judge yeah, and a very yeah.
1: impressive judge. Mm, exactly. So the evidence in the hearing itself was given by Cyril himself and by Father O'Doherty and apparently by two priests who had been involved in the church annulment proceedings, but we don't know anything more about them like that. And also Cyril's father, who by that stage was old enough that he couldn't give evidence in person, but he gave evidence on commission, which for, for listeners who aren't aware of this, is where somebody effectively goes to the bedside of a sick person and takes their testimony, which is then admitted into court as evidence. So essentially what happens then was that the court had to decide, and I think the question that was raised before the court was, whether the petitioner was induced to go through the ceremony of this alleged marriage with the respondent by such threats and duress as to make the said marriage invalid for want of real consent. I mean, it's. I
0: suppose the judge was very reluctant here, wasn't he? I mean, yeah, despite the mm. fact that the Catholic Church had yeah. given its pronouncement on it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. the witnesses, the yeah. Father O'Doherty, if I can mention yeah. him again.
1: Well, I, I, th- th- know, I think that the, I think we can safely say that. The that marriage as an institution was considered sacred, not just in the religious sense. You know, that, that in those days, there was effectively no divorce in Ireland, that marriage was considered something that you went into for life. And it wasn't just the church that sought to uphold this, it was the courts. And if somebody wanted to go in and say, actually, do you know what? I was forced to go through this marriage. The courts were going to take an extremely skeptical view of that. And it's clear from the... Tone of uh, Mr Justice Hawes' judgment that he took a very sceptical view. He went through quite a lot of detail to look at the distinction between a church marriage and a, and a marriage at law. You know, emphasised the fact that although the two tend to take place at the same time, that they they have different meanings. He he looked at the distinction between divorce and nullity. He went through the, the law of duress and int- intimidation. And what he said about Cyril's evidence then was. Um, That Cyril hadn't been cross-examined so that he, he, again, he had to take a certain skeptical view. He said, it is a unique and remarkable story and if it stood by itself without reliable corroboration, told some 18 years after the ceremony, I would be bound to reject it because of its inherent improbability and might with reason suspect that it was either the result of his own invention or a collusive narrative prepared by both parties for their mutual convenience. That you know, he's saying that even if two people wanted to get out of a marriage, that um, you, you know, if they make if they come up with a story like that, that the courts would be bound to refuse to to, um, to, to, to grant them. And, and he,
0: he did make the point that many valid marriages, you know, are, are entered into on the basis of a threat yeah yeah, yeah and that you know I mean should we say I mean, valid in,
1: in, in those days I the mean, I old don't old shotgun
0: g- wedding for yeah, example yeah, you know exactly. I mean that's entirely mm. valid mm. I mean that's yeah. a perfectly good marriage as far mm. as Kevin Haw and Irish society was in, in, mm. in the good old days mm. so so the, the form of duress in this it's, it's, it's different I mean there was duress in this in the sense that this young man the poor young fella was worried mm. about he might have to go to jail because mm. you know mm. Margaret was 17 at the time mm. he was alleged to have had intercourse with her. Mm. But then there was also a lack of knowledge. I mean, he didn't mm. know what he was doing. He didn't know when, when, he, mm. when he made a commitment, yeah. he mm. wasn't aware of the true nature of the story due to his own innocence mm. and
1: to, you know, suddenly being confronted with mm. this big scenario that he had yeah. never anticipated. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think the, the central part of this is the fact that she misled him, that she knew that another man was the father of her child and that she clearly needed in her own terms to find to find somebody who was prepared to marry her and um and and light it on poor poor Cyril. Okay. And
0: I can understand why, you know, this is a big decision for the judge to make, mm. you know, against the social mores of that time and contrary to, you know, yeah. established views in Irish society. Mm. But he was very resistant to, you know, the evidence, the plain evidence that wasn't contradicted. Mm. As you say, Margaret was still looking Mm. for alimony and for Mm. some financial support, but she wasn't in any way challenging the story that was being given. Now, he kind of addressed that by saying, oh, they could have been in in cahoots, basically, Mm -hmm. where they could have come together and concocted the story for their own mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. Though it was hard to see where the mutual benefit was here you know
1: for, for anybody really in, well, in, in I suppose this the situation well the mutual benefit would be that the two both people start who, over yeah exactly that you know the two of them ha- hadn't lived together since since a couple of months after they got married and w- might have wanted to start over but anyway in terms mm. of his conclusion mm. he went to the most substantial evidence of all and that
0: was provided by father o'doherty isn't that's that correct can yeah. i just read a quote here mm. from from the decision mark which you very kindly mm. gave to me I have taken the view that the petitioner was a somewhat innocent young man, as stated by Father O'Doherty in his evidence, and was much influenced by his father's advice and wishes. As far as I judge by this test, he seemed a truthful and candid witness, and I believe the position was having regard to his youth and general inexperience, but overborne by the advice and suggestions of his father and Father O'Doherty, and gravely influenced and frightened by the threat of prosecution And the consequent exposure and scandal to himself and his parents, along with the fear of possible imprisonment, that he married the respondent in the belief that he was possibly, but not probably, responsible for her pregnancy. Yeah, I mean,
1: very well said by the judge.
0: Mm, So he came around to the
1: idea. So an annulment was granted. Exactly. And I think it's worth saying that the two letters written by Margaret and the statement that she signed in the presence of Father O'Doherty and Cyril Griffiths were, were very influential. That, it, that they were the the corroboration that was necessary to to establish Cyril's story.
0: Okay. Now, we recently, as you know, had a wonderful discussion with uh, Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan about the McGee case, which kind of changed social mores yeah. in Ireland. Uh, so were they all marching on O'Connell Street after this and saying, you know, look, this poor young man had been forced into a marriage that he couldn't get
1: out of and that we need to address that? You know, I can see the
0: placards not over a- O'Connell Bridge, no?
1: not as such but what is worth saying is that the concept of legal nullity became a much more important feature of irish family law in the years after this case now obviously the misrepresentation and duress were were specific to this case but what happened After this, sort of, particularly in the 60s and 70s, was that the concept developed of somebody being um, effectively unready for marriage, unable to enter into and sustain normal marital relations, was the term that was used. So, if somebody was effectively just a bit too young and immature to get married, the courts was started to take a rather benign view and would grant nullity in certain cases. Now, again, they would be extremely hesitant to do so, but there there certainly was precedent for such cases.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know a lot about this area. I mean, when I'm thinking of family law, it goes back to Paul Ward's lectures at UCD all those years ago. But I mean, there was, you know, some case law precedent in relation to the fact that people were not aware of what they're entering into. And that basically you haven't made a valid election because you don't know... And I mean, there were cases where when a couple that had previously not been intimate tried mm. to be intimate and it didn't work out. Mm. I mean, the state looked on that favourably towards the parties the, and, and basically said, we're not going to force you to stay together.
1: That was a, I think there was a more long-standing rule that a marriage could be annulled if it hadn't been consummated or if, should we say, one of the parties was unable to engage in the necessary act of consummation. But it was arising from that that they started to use the term inability to to enter into a, and sustain normal ra- marital relations. It took a sort of a wider meaning than the, the 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 straightforward kind of impotence. Okay, so so where stand we now, Mark? This has been really interesting,
0: really really good. Um, where stand we now in terms of nullity? Now we can get divorced. Do we need nullity
1: anymore? Is it is it is it gone? Um, I think. Clearly, I suppose a few changes have have happened. I mean, first of all, obviously, in 1995, we had the divorce referendum. And now, you know, it, it, once, once you've met the criteria, you can get divorced. So nullity isn't such an issue. I am aware from colleagues that nullity is occasionally relied on, really in cases where very young people have got married and the, the marriage has fallen apart so quickly that they... They effectively say, "Well, look, let's ju- let's see if we can treat this marriage as never having taken place, rather yes. than goes down the divorce." So, I mean, route. I suppose just,
0: just for listeners who mightn't understand mm-hmm. the distinction, mm-hmm. if there is if the 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 marriage is annulled, it never happened. Yeah, it's, it's a way it's, of, it's gone ab initio. Exactly. It's gone. It, it's a way of saying that the con- the marriage contract never took place at law. Whereas, if you get divorced, you were married up until the point at which you got divorced, exactly. and, and you then, had a valid marriage, yeah. and therefore consequences might flow from that. Yeah, property rights. Maintenance, all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I
1: mean, I suppose that it's also worth saying that the distinction between being married and not being married has fallen away in a number of respects. First of all, in 1987, the concept of illegitimacy was removed at Irish law. So if a child is born outside of wedlock, that the child doesn't suffer in the way that they did previously in relation to, well, um, particularly inheritance rights. And obviously the stigma of, of illegitimacy really just doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. And, and also then the, the, the rights and duties of cohabitants legislation means that if two people are living together as if they are husband and wife without having got married, s- certain legal consequences kind of flow, including claims for maintenance and succession.
0: Okay. Well, Mark, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for bringing this case to our attention. What's the moral of the story? Don't go
1: camping and Hoth. Is that I, it? I, I, I'm I'm sure that is what what the, the main takeaway for for our listeners. Yes, in fact, I'm not even sure if you're allowed to camp in Hoth okay. these days. Well, well, Mark, I don't know. You, you
0: might be a regular listener to this show, but we have <laughs> this feature where we ask people to recommend a book uh, or a movie to our listeners that they might be interested in.
1: Would you, would you, could you, uh, any books or movies that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? It's funny you should mention that. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a book which, it's not primarily a legal book, but there's a book called The Power Broker by Robert Caro, which has become kind of, uh, it was written in the 1970s about Robert Moses, who was the commissioner of New York for 40 years and effectively was responsible for almost all of the, the development in New York City and state for a period of about 40 years it's suddenly become kind of fashionable again because there is a podcast um, in relation to the book. I read it a few years ago, and what I found particularly interesting about it was that there were two ways in which Robert Moses exercised power. One was that he had an extraordinary talent for drafting legislation in such a way that the legislators who voted on it didn't understand what they were voting on. And secondly, that a large number of the public contracts had clauses in them that said that the bondholders were the ones who had more power over the contracts than the public officials. And so whenever a public official said, we can't allow this to pr- proceed, he'd say, yeah, but look, the bondholders are the ones who have the, deci- the, the, the whip hand here. And, uh, the, and This book by, was never made into a movie, Mark, was it? This, uh, well, a play has been made about it, oh, but it, it <laughs> is an extraordinary <laughs> Touché, book. Touche, right back at me. Yeah, but absolutely. It, but I have to warn listeners, it is over a thousand pages long and it certainly took me about okay. a year to read. Great. So, no, very good. And what about a movie? Let me think. Um, short of My Cousin Vinny and Legally Blonde, nothing is leaping, leaping to well, mind. Can I but, just this yeah, yeah, you mentioned here. this is, yeah. Well, yeah.
0: This, I'm probably out of order here. I'm breaking the sequence here. But nobody has ever <laughs> mentioned my favourite legal movie which is a movie called Music Box, from 1989, Costa Gravis. I was in Berlin at the time and it won the Golden Bear Award. And it's an incredible story about a lawyer played by Jessica Lange, if people remember her, a fabulous mm-hmm. actress, who's defending her father who's accused of Nazi war crimes. Okay. So if any of our listeners out there want to check out Music Box, Music I would Box. love to get okay. some reaction. Do people agree yeah. with me? It is fantastic courtroom okay. drama. So there you yeah. go. Anyway, okay. Mark, thank you Please. for this and thank you for bringing no. the case of Griffith versus Griffith to our attention. Uh, it's been really interesting. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. Well, that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it.
1: And Mark, I hope you enjoyed our little discussion there about Griffith and Griffith. I did. Well, as you know, it's a case I've, I've read a long time ago and I just keep coming back to it because I think it's just such an interesting set of facts. I thought it was great. <laughs> well done.
0: Before we go, I would like to say a big thank you to our producer, Cunelo Moroin and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South podcast studios for their wonderful work in recording this show. So, for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Wild Atlantic Law is Ireland's newest and most exciting festival of legal ideas come to Ennistymon County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May to hear a range of fascinating speakers have a look at the program at wildatlanticlaw.com